0: Hey folks, just a quick update before we dive into today's episode. We're taking a brief break for Memorial Day, but in the meantime, please enjoy this rebroadcast of one of our most downloaded episodes, a conversation with TULIP CTO, Ronnie Kubat, discussing the complexity of the shop floor and bridging the physical digital divide in industrial tech. Enjoy. Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations, where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 66 of the podcast, the topic is bridging the physical digital divide in industrial tech. Our guest is Roni Kubat, CTO and co-founder of Tulip. In this conversation, we talk about why it took so long to build Tulip from the demo that I saw at MIT in 2013 to the company it is today. We discuss the complexity of the shop floor with case studies From the machine tool industry and programming in a physical digital environment what does that mean and what does digital lean mean and augmentation is that also changing enabling the manufacturing workforce to improve efficiencies and share best practices and reduce downtime and increase the consistency and safety in their manual processes is all happening What's next in industrial tech? Roni, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm excited to talk to you. I can't believe it's been so long. You know, you and I connected back at uh, when I guess you were just spinning out of MIT with Tulip. And then since I've been working with Tulip, but we have barely seen each other. Where have you been and where have I been? <laughs> yeah,
1: so <laughs> I mean, it was it was maybe like uh, 6 or 7 years ago and we were spending a bunch of time back with uh, at MIT and through the ILP there and that's that's when we, we first met and then uh, you know you came to, to it, but you came in the middle of a pandemic so <laughs> yeah. we haven't uh, I haven't been able to you know spend our time and also i you know moved to germany for for 7 months uh, which also made it more difficult. So, um, but you know, it's good to be back, back home.
0: Yeah. No, we'll get to that, uh, Roni. I, I must say, here's how I wanted to start. We haven't talked about this, but I think you grew up in Massachusetts, is that right? You went to Lincoln Sudbury yeah. High School.
1: That's right. Uh, home of They Might Be Giants.
0: <laughs> exactly. But then things took a different path, I must say. Your journey to four degrees at MIT, that's, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's hard to compete with. Not that I'm competing, but I could imagine some people getting a little intimidated by four MIT degrees. What, what went into your head? You just wanted to gather yeah. degrees.
1: <laughs> it's a collection. No, the um, the short of it was at MIT. There's um, there's both computer science and electrical engineering, and then there's sort of a joint uh, program, sort of in between in between the two of them. I wanted to do you know robotics for the longest time. So I, I started out in, this, in the joint program, uh, realized after a couple of years that I hadn't actually taken any EE classes beyond the initial required ones, and so realized that was actually just computer science. But back in the undergraduate days, you know, one of the reasons I ended up at MIT was because of this one class. At the time, it was called 270. Was called 2007. It was called two double oh seven. It was, you know, it's the famous uh, class where they give you a box of parts and you build a machine in the course of the semester to do some competition. And I remember, you know, seeing uh, being in middle school and seeing Scientific American Frontiers, and they would showcase uh, two I was like, I, I have to go there. So to be there, you have to be to take that class. You have to be a mechanical engineering uh, major. So I had to add mechanical engineering to take the class. And then, you know, ended up uh, on the uh, the five year plan to to finish that off. <laughs> um, so that was uh, that's how I ended up in, in the undergraduate days. And after taking some time away um, and getting bored with uh, what I was doing out there in the in the, in the real world, realized uh, it was time to go back to you know more engage my brain and go back to grad school. But um, didn't anticipate coming back to MIT, but ended up there nonetheless. <laughs>
0: So, so yeah, I mean, we'll get to some of the stuff you did in between. I don't exactly know the timing uh, uh, you know and and we'll talk specifically about what happened you know so between C sales so you you then went back for for a grad degree at uh, uh, the computer science and AI lab and then went to the media Lab but before that you you've been throughout uh, your time, you've been uh, basically a playwright, I understand, and you've had uh, so a stint as a science advisor to Hollywood film productions. How, how, when did that happen?
1: It happened during undergraduate time. So I've always been, had there's an art side to me, like many uh, a- engineers, like uh, Sci-Fi Buff and, uh, you know, the, the, first, the first generation of Star Wars fans. So even throughout throughout my undergraduate time drawn to the arts and for me that that manifested through theater and through through cinema so i spent my summer internships were spent out in los angeles i was fantastically lucky to be in the right place at the right time and was able to work on a couple of projects and meet some very generous art directors and production designers who both took me under their wing and had a real Affinity for giving a truthiness, scientific truthiness to the projects they're working on.
0: So you were advising on, this is what I've gathered, a Mars film by James Cameron that I believe maybe didn't get produced in the end. And then K-19, The Widowmaker. It's a Catherine Bigelow movie. And then Blade 3. David Goyer, and then lastly on *Stepford Wives* with Frank Oz, just one, one of those. What was interesting about any one of those? Were you literally advising them on what tech is possible to do versus what is truly sci-fi? Is that kind of the role of a science advisor, yeah, or, or even just how to visualize it correctly?
1: Yeah, it's a bit. It's a bit of both. For example, on the James Cameron project, which was as you know, this. Is this is now a long time ago. This was before, before I think, work even began on Avatar. The short of it is that I was a kid with a tremendous amount of chutzpah, and I was working elsewhere in the building and would peek my head into the room of the art department and start saying, I oh, would do it this other way. This doesn't make sense. And, and I was very lucky that Mike Novotny, the production designer, brought me on to give the scientific context around the kinds of designs that they they were working on, because Cameron is someone who really cares a lot about being truthful to to the science, because the realism is uh, is critical to the storytelling and being for the audience to be immersed into whatever that that world is. And so, I was working with the art department there in in that regard, and then. McNamara was production designer as well for K nineteen, and so I remember being in the middle of some architecture class and getting a phone call. Some set designer asked me, "How do Russian torpedoes work?" I was like, no idea. <laughs> I'll find out for you. Oh yeah.
0: Come to think of it,
1: right. So, in a sense, like being in those experiences again, was working with art departments. A key thing is having both an understanding of the, what's plausible what's what has a sense of, of realism but there's a there's a storytelling aspect of this because the audience ultimately doesn't care most of the time they care about having a good story and so if there is a complex idea that needs to be explained so in the case of k19 it was it's a true story of, a, of an accident aboard a, a Russian submarine then how can you explain the complexity in a way that general audience member will understand to understand the stakes of what's going on by the characters or by by the people that are involved. That's one one side of it. The the other side of it is that there's so much incredible things that are happening in the real world and in the sciences and engineering that bringing some of those ideas can create unique stories. That's more on the speculative side, whether it be the Mars Project or Stepford Wives or Blade 3 and things like that.
0: Look, I'd, I'd love to keep talking about this. Uh, this is extremely interesting. I'm sure many, many an engineer would love to have had that role, even to dip into f- it for a second, because I, I guess it really just com- combines, right? It combines deep science with communication, with obviously a, a little bit of sci-fi intermixed. But I wanted to maybe today to use it to, to transition to then, you're the CTO currently at Tulip. And I'm curious because... Tulip is also not just a typical digital company. It, it is very much a challenge of what truth and reality is on the shop floor and with physical systems. So I wondered, first of all, what do you actually do in this particular capacity? But also, what are you bringing with you in your backpack from MIT, but also from this kind of real-world slash fictional world that we were just talking about is there anything at all that has inspired you and has helped you as you've been building and co-founding tulip
1: yeah so i think that cto as a title it can mean incredibly different things in different companies but what it is here at tulip a big part of it is looking towards what is the the future not at a second horizon, right? So a lot of ways, think about different levels of uh, technologies. For example, NASA has the uh, technology readiness levels um, that vary from something that's basic research and first indicators to something that's flight ready, right? At the other end of the spectrum. And so you can think about technology readiness levels or another way of thinking about this is in horizon one, horizon two sort of types of technology that are Horizon 1 are things that are really in the immediate near future that you can see to build and Horizon 2 is a little farther afield but is directionally where you want to go so in my role as as CTO, it's looking at the farther horizon type technologies or directions, a little bit of tea leaf reading of where we should go, where we should begin to get an experience and expertise in and think on the, how would the impact on product be in the longer term hmm. the kind of the first I'd say the first sort of manifestation of that within tulip came from work that was very near and dear to me from the from grad school which was what ended up being the computer vision related features that are part of tulip
0: and I wanted to get to the computer vision part because there's always this talk of what's a good demo I thought that the demo for Tulip, the initial vision demo for Tulip that I saw, I guess, the first time perhaps in your headquarters when you were just five employees or something, was one of the demos of the decade for me. I truly saw what you were trying to build, and I thought, this is very unusual. It's also extremely compelling and very hard to do at the same time. I wanted to ask you, so when you created that demo, did you realize how long it would take to turn that into a product, which I guess it actually shipped this spring, right? So that's, what, seven, eight years later. And then why did it take so long? Was that demo really your Hollywood self, meaning you knew that you weren't going to be able to deliver that product the next year to anybody, clients or investors or or even within the team? Like, you knew that was truly a demo? Or is it just that, In order to create an industrial company of that scale that you are now creating, you have to awe people with a bit of sci-fi. And then obviously, (laughs) kudos to to Tulip, it is now built. Just comment a little on the demo. I'm not the first, by the way, who has been super impressed by that demo. Obviously, it must have been part of the first clients. It must have been getting investors on board. Mm -hmm. It was a smashingly good demo. It was a
1: great demo. That's really the the Media Lab uh, DNA coming through. Right. And so the MIT Media Lab is, has had for a long time culture, the, the demo or die culture. And so having, creating a, a magical reality in a sense, as, as driven by real technology, is that's part of the training effectively that you get at the Media Lab. The productization part of it, the how long it took us to get to something where it really was now, how it's manifest within TULIP, really speaks to the real demands of the industrial setting where you can't be 99% good. right? Imagine you're working on your tablet and one out of 100 times your mouse press or your finger press on the on the screen just doesn't register or doesn't something wrong like how long would it take you before you threw it against the wall and like never picked it up
0: again right you, Yeah not very long I had some of that happen and obviously sometimes it's the battery other times it's it is truly a defect but yes you get you go completely ballistic even if it is one in 100
1: so it's getting that last fraction of performance accuracy what have you that is the, the hard part It takes you from something that you can imagine a future to something you can work with day to day. And that's there's just a ton of work that's part of it. The other thing that happened between those very early demos and today was, I guess, a recognition of the tremendous amount of low-hanging fruit that's out there within the industrial space. That just the fact that so much is still on paper and in a kind of mind-boggling way that if you think about making for a sustainable deployment of any kind of new idea, new paradigm into into an industry, you have to take it incrementally because the factories are not going to shut down and stop working for a while. You reduce everything. So they have to keep going. It's as much uh, an introduction of a new technology is as much a person-related change management challenge as it is the pure tech. And so with all the low-hanging fruit that's out there and the requirements for both the change within the organizations as well as for performing products, that is the what, why we sort of, with the direction we did. I have to add to that as well is that since we started to look whatever it was seven years ago or so, that's a lot of performance increase just from pure computer performance increase that that happened during that time period, and also an enormous amount of research in computer vision that has occurred since then that we were able to take and bring into the product. Things like neural networks, which have been around for decades and decades, made some really important leaps because uh, all of a sudden you could reuse graphic cards to start training these networks, and also the techniques by which you were able to train them became different. And also, the amount of memory that you could have on board massively expanded. And all of a sudden, things that were impossible before became not only possible, but really accurate and performant and inexpensive enough to be able to deploy.
0: It's funny you say that because you also said to me the other day that current AI is mostly fancy regression so you, you're combining on when it comes to hard compute on very specific items like like vision, there's been progress but then you, you're also a bit of a myth debunker right you're not just sci-fi in the clouds kind of a person, so you're also pretty realistic on AI versus machine learning Is that kind of how you would divide it there's a lot of good machine learning happening, but this like fantastic sci-fi world of true AI, you're not enormously optimistic that we're there yet.
1: Yeah, it's a fool's errand in some ways to really predict the future because you're just going to be wrong in a lot of ways. We've discussed it on your podcast as well, the challenges of it. So I am I am continually surprised when some new result comes out. For example, one of the best-known recent advances is GPT, which is a text-based, effectively, text completion engine trained on the internet which you can start typing something and it'll complete complete an answer in a very shocking and surprising way and how effective it is but that's not that that is a fancy regression model and in, in a sense it's like given some trajectory in this super duper high dimensional space